When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Knife Talk is sponsored by Evenheat, the manufacturer of the finest knife heat treat ovens available. Find your next heat treat oven at evenheat-kiln.com. So welcome to episode 23 of Knife Talk. Now today I'll be speaking with the maker of some of the most beautiful chef knives that I've ever seen. It's the incredible Mareko Malmasi. So welcome to the show, Mareko. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well, Craig. Hi, how are you doing? It's a it's a pleasure to be on, and I really appreciate you uh, inviting me to come and have a chat with you. Yeah, well, again, thank you, thank you for taking the time out. So, so you in the shop today? I, I am in the shop today. I did find a nice, quiet spot for me to uh, to have a, a conversation with you, which is kind of difficult when I'm sharing the space with three other makers who yeah. are all doing their own kind of thing. Uh, but <laughs> hide know, their I hammers. Hide the hammers, yeah. that's the best way. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot of them. <laughs> so, so for those that don't know of your work, can you, can you explain to the listeners what you do? Yeah, so I specialize uh, – well, let me back up a little bit. I'm a bladesmith, uh, and, which means I actually forge my blades. And, but I actually got my start uh, doing stock removal, mm. um, which I think is a great place for a lot of people to start. Um, but I specialize in kitchen knives, culinary knives. Um, the reason that I focus on culinary knives, uh, one is because when I got my start, I worked for a, a culinary knife maker who I believe has been on your show actually before, Bob Kramer. Oh, and, I, I think uh, I've heard of the guy. Yeah, I think I've heard. Yeah, of Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, and it's also it's the knife I know the best. Yeah. Uh, so I worked in kitchens myself for uh, off and on, um, jumping between jobs for around a uh, about about seven years. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so all out of all the different kind of edged tools that I could make that take the form of a knife, culinary knives are the ones that I know the best. I know from my own experience, uh, how they should feel, weigh, balance, uh, and, you know, that's of course based off my perspective, but, um, you know, it, it's it's the product that I feel like I could stand behind yeah, the best. Yeah, and I mean, speaking yeah. to the you know makers of chef knives, which I've done, you know, quite a few on the show, they've they've made specifically chef knives. They've all had yeah. a, they've all had a background in professional kitchens, you know. So it's, sure. it's a tool that they're used to handling. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah, and I think realistically, for anybody to um, to to make a, a tool as best as it possibly can, it, it helps for them to have experience using that tool. Uh, it makes, it, I mean, it would make no sense for me to make fly fishing rods. I don't know how to fly fish, you know. <laughs> and so, so there. You, yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, you've already mentioned that you you trained, you know, with the master Bob Kramer. So, so how did the you master. manage that? How did you get that gig? 
I, it, that was actually just absolutely sheer, pure luck. Um, I was actually working in a restaurant at the time as well as uh, moonlighting as a, an assistant salsa dancing instructor um, <laughs> slash community performer slash, uh, yeah, whatever. And uh, I had a friend who worked for him, who had just started working for him, uh, helping him with his book work and orders and organizing a little bit in his office space. Hmm. Um, and this is just before his article in The New Yorker came out in 2008. Hmm. And... Um, and so she started working for him. I was working a job that I was not very happy in. Um, and, you know, I was I, I was working with her. And I said, you know, uh, I don't know what the hell I'm doing with myself. I'm 24 years old and I feel like I have absolutely no direction. And she's like, oh, you should meet this guy that I just started working for. He's really interesting. I think you guys would get on really well. Uh, you know, he's been all over the world. He even was a clown at one point in his life. And she's like, yeah, he's a bladesmith. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? He's a bladesmith. Hmm. She's like, well, you know, it's like blacksmithing, but he makes knives. And I just, the, with the most puzzled look on my face, I'm sure, I was like, people still do that? Like, I had <laughs> absolutely no idea. And she's like, yeah, and it's great. He makes really great stuff. But I think you guys could get would get along really well. So, um uh, let's let's get that going. And so we worked it out, and we ended up actually meeting at the pub I was working at. Um, and over a couple beers and some fish and chips, we chatted about life a little bit. And I was kind of just at a lot, like I said, at a loss. And uh, she thought that he could help um, help me with from his own experience of being all over the place and whatnot. Um, help bestow some wisdom, I guess, upon me. And um, it ended up being a uh, transitioning into uh, an interview in a way. And by the end of our conversation, he offered me an opportunity to work in his shop. And this, and I think I recognize now that that's because he was anticipating a, a major influx of interest in his work. And, and he was already backlogged at the time. Hmm. And so, and this article in the New Yorker was coming out and it would be idiotic to not take orders when that happens. Um, and so he was looking for somebody to pull into the shop and to help, uh, even if it was just to help keep things clean, you know? Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. So how long did that last? How long were you working with Bob? Yeah, I worked for Bob for three years, almost exactly. Uh, two years and 11 and a half months or something like that. Yeah. Oh, nice. And, nice. uh, yeah. Yeah, I worked for him for almost three years. Yeah, so so it's always been kitchen knives for you then. So the first knife that you made would have been a kitchen knife and just that's what you've always done. Yeah, actually, so the first knife I ever actually made uh, was a kind of hunting uh, slash like fighting knife for oh. my brother. Uh, he had just joined the military and he was graduating from basic, basic training at the time. And that was the very first knife I ever made. Uh, and then from then on out, it's pretty much been culinary knives with, uh, with the hunting knife slash, uh, non-culinary knife here and there, yeah. even letter openers from time to time. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what, in your opinion, makes for, for a great kitchen knife? I mean, let, let's talk, you know, a standard sort of chef knife. Um, well, I think so opinions and excuse my language but uh i think the old adage is opinions are like assholes everybody's got one and everybody thinks everybody else's stinks <laughs> and the reality is that for everybody out there in the world they have their own opinion based on 
the ergonomics of their own bodies, their own preferences, the experiences they had cooking with their grandmothers or the experiences they have from going to culinary school and working mm -hmm. professionally for several years um, to somebody who is just an enthusiast at home. So in that same way, I build my knives based off my experience. Um, and so for me, I like a uh, a medium, well, I guess a medium long length. So around nine inches, or, uh, I think that's about 220 millimeters or so, which is, I think just under nine, but, um, uh, and I like a nice distal taper with a little bit of flexibility out at the tip, especially for a chef's knife. Um, you know, realistically that a chef's knife is a general purpose knife that is designed or ideally designed to, uh, at least in the Western uh, I guess, ideology uh, to cover a series of tasks uh, that might be uh, all the way down to where you might use a, a utility knife or a, a small petty all the way up to big slicing or breaking down of uh, proteins or large fruits and vegetables. Um, so nice and flexible out at like the outer, the, the last third uh, out to the tip um, uh, and to back back of the heel, the first, I don't know, maybe a couple inches or so with a little bit more beef so that it can withstand some press cutting, um, through chicken bones or, you know, I, I do press cuts through, uh, dry bamboo, uh, chopsticks, uh, just to get a feel for how the edge geometry feels back at that area. Mm. Cause like I said, it, um, then the chef's knife, ultimately covers a, a, a large portion of the spectrum, I guess, of tasks that you might be doing in your preparation work for cooking. Yeah. Uh, and then when it, and when it comes to handle, I like a, a nice, um, I guess, a highly contoured handle, something that feels really comfortable in my hand. And I think def that, uh, I guess, perspective comes especially from my experience working for Bob, his handles are very highly contoured, really nice feeling, uh, handle shapes. Um, and it, you, most of the commercial stuff that you might find out there usually has some sort of flats or something like that, which is fine. Um, but for me, I really like a nice contoured handle that feels like I'm, like I'm shaking somebody's hand. I want it to be a natural extension, uh, of me because realistically the relationship that we have with the actual, the business end of the knife is through that handle. And, uh, in my working in, in kitchens and restaurants, it was, uh, you know, a lot of prep work, a lot of standing, chopping, dicing, slicing, breaking down stuff and preparing foods, um, for hours on end. And it has to feel comfortable for, uh, you to be able to want to do that for long periods of time. And I hated it. And part of that reason is because I hated holding on to the knives. It just was not as enjoyable and uncomfortable as uh, I thought it could be. Hmm. And so, so, so that it really is... sort of index then, doesn't it? In index into your hands. So you've got a, a nice sort of comfortable, yeah. but, but solid grip. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So, I mean, a lot of makers are concentrating solely on maybe Japanese designs. But yours definitely sure. definitely have more of a sort of Western or a European aesthetic, particularly on the handles. So yeah, I mean, I'm, that's my favorite style too. But um, are sure. you often asked to make sort of Japanese-inspired designs and things that you're not particularly comfortable with? Um, I'm actually really comfortable with all of the different styles and designs. Um, I do. I actually get a pretty even. Uh, request for Western style blades and Japanese inspired blades. 
um, because, like I said, like uh, everybody has their own preferences and as to what they're comfortable with using. And I, I, when I talk to a customer uh, on top of discussing, trying to figure out, you know, what are they using then actually using the knife for, so that I could tailor the geometry a little bit towards that. Um, I, I, uh, I give them, I, or I, I tell them, you know, this is their opportunity to kind of design a knife um, themselves. And, and I consider myself a kind of tailor of cutlery in that way that I can make the, the blade a little wider or a little longer or an odd length or, or a very specific kind of grind. I can do pretty much any kind of grind, uh, any kind of handle shape. I can shrink the handle. I can make it larger if you have larger hands. Uh, and so, yeah, I, uh, I do get, I do gravitate towards the, uh, I guess the uh, the the Japanese inspired style knives a little bit more. Uh, I like them um, in the fact that the the geometry, or I guess not necessarily geometry, but the the blade, uh, the edge profile. I I really like that a lot. I my Western style knives do um, have a very kind of German chef's knife profile, hmm. um, but I in that also comes from my experience working with Bob, but one of the things I was hated about, or I guess not hated, but strongly disliked about <laughs> European style chef's knives is they always have a really steep curve, uh, up to the tip at the, at the outer, uh, end. Yeah. Of that, the knife. That's sort of rocker. And, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I still have that in my knives, but they emulate more of a, of a Japanese, uh, cutting profile where you can still rock the blade up, high enough to chop, you know, rock chop something that's two, two and a half inches tall uh, without the tip of the blade digging into the board. But it also allows you easier access to the tip if you are going to, again, use that general purpose knife to do some work that maybe you might typically reach for a utility knife to do. And that was part of the reason I I've specifically designed that GM or that, sorry, that edge profile. Uh, yeah. I, both in my Western style inspired and Japanese inspired uh, blades. Mm. And I really like what you said there about that sort of tailored approach as well. And that does carry yeah. through on your site, doesn't it? So you are, you know, you ask a series of questions um, and then you go to work on a design. I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. So you're, yeah, I think, Oh, sorry. So, sorry. After you, after you. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say, you know, it, 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 I think it's a, a very rare opportunity uh, for people to, to really get a chance. I mean, that's the purpose of a custom knife, right? Mm. It's them designing the knife, a customer designing them their knives, um, to fit themselves, to be custom fit for them. And, um, especially people who have a lot of experience, um, they, they have very specific things that they like or wish that they had, uh, or wish were uh, features in a knife that they don't, they've never experienced, uh, which is, again, the same perspective kind of that I came from. And the reason I've designed my knives the way that I do uh, is because essentially it was a series of things that I was like, damn it, I wish this, that, and the other thing were different on this knife. And then when I started making my own, I was able to put those into the knife, um, those design features. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of people who don't necessarily know what they, they want and they, and they lean on me a little bit more for, uh, advice. And that's when I start talking to them about, you know, like I, I had a customer actually a perfect example. They, they're saying, you know, I'm, I'm interested in 
I like, or sorry, they said, I like the Nikiri and a Santoku, but I also, you know, I like the Western style. And I'm like, well, how do you cut with the knife? Mm. Are you doing press cuts or sorry, uh, push cuts or pull draw cuts? Uh, if that's the case, then the Kiri is going to be great. But if you do a lot of rock chopping in your cooking or in your prep work for your for cooking, the Nikiri is going to be absolutely worthless to you because it's pretty much an almost entirely flat cutting mm-hmm. edge that abruptly turns at an angle uh, down at the tip. But if that's the case, if you do more rock chopping, maybe a Santoku or more of a Gyudo, uh profile is going to... Uh, you know, suit you better as well as, you know, what kind of materials are you actually cutting? Are you, are you vegetarian? You're never going to come into contact with bones. Um, then great. Like I can take the edge geometry a little bit thinner for you. Um, because you know, you don't have to worry about the edge being deflected off anything super Mm -hmm. hard that could potentially uh, chip the material out or damage the cutting edge. Um, and then also, you know, if somebody doesn't have as much experience with uh, a knife and they are an enthusiast at home and they're looking for uh, something that when they come home from their job as a lawyer or whatever they do professionally to cook, they want a knife that's going to help encourage that experience and make it as joyful and as pleasurable as they want or as, as it can be without it being a chore, right? Mm, yeah, and definitely, yeah. But if they have less experience with taking care of or maintaining a, 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 you know, especially a high carbon steel knife, because they have a a tendency to be a bit harder than a stainless steel knife or most stainless steel knives, um, then I will actually leave the edge geometry just a pinch heftier uh, to help um, encourage more strength or guess more support behind that leading edge uh, Hmm. for them. Because there's like more likely to be accidental misuse or uh, contact with things that could damage. Yeah, um, so a bit more forgiving, I suppose. Edge. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so let, let's talk about your Damascus patterns. I mean, they're the, sure. probably the best that I've seen. So I know that you do your your thing once a week, where you you know you 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 sort of drill down the, the pattern and you show how it's being made and that kind of thing. Sure. Do you have a favorite pattern? Um, I'm constantly playing with my pattern styles and I'm always, I have kind of a little black book full of designs that I've still have never, uh, actually attempted there. A lot of them are mostly theoretical right now based Mm. on knowing what a certain process is going to do to the material and how it's going to move to the, the design. I see things out in the world that I'm like, Oh man, I could, I think I could make a Damascus pattern out of that. Um, but then I have to, I quickly sketch it out or take a picture and then I go back home and then I kind of, I have to reverse engineer that process of how that would work. Uh, which is kind of, it can be really challenging at times, but, um, sorry to answer your question really, uh, more concisely, you know, I, one of my favorite patterns still is um, a topography, what I call a topography pattern. Uh, most makers call the Dama- it random Damascus, but I call it topography because random Damascus doesn't necessarily mean anything to a customer other than, sure, maybe the pattern's a little random, but to help give it more character, I, like it looks like I'm looking at a topographical map. So I'm going to call it topography to Damascus. But anyways, topography has always been uh, a standard um, that I've, I've always loved. I really like, um, some of the more flowing mosaic patterns, um, like a explosion pattern, W's explosions, 
uh, that literally look like explosions uh, emanating from a certain uh, pinpoint area, hmm. as well as um, I've. So the way that I do my standard grinding my knives is a compound grind or an S grind. So that's a combination of a, a hollow grind above a convex cutting edge. Yeah. And when I forge a sandmai style blade, part of that grind actually cuts down into uh, that core material, revealing more of that core material. Um, and at first, it really pissed me off, actually, because because um, the kind of the idea is that you're um, you're you're protecting the core material with this cladding. But since the steel is all carbon, that's not necessarily the case. At that point, it's more aesthetics. And I realized, like, it kind of looks more like an Arctic coastline. And so that's what I've started calling that. It looks like little icebergs and islands off the coast of some craggy, icy, coal area hmm. or place, you know. <laughs> uh, so that's another fun one I really enjoy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the videos that you put on Instagram, I mean, they're all very sort of highly instructional, too. Well, um, so sure. do you find out that, that that takes time away from producing knives or is it just something that you can just do on the fly and carry on with work? At first it was really, uh, it could be very time consuming, but mm. after a little bit of practice and, uh, uh, I would say probably the most challenging part is just getting comfortable talking in front of a camera, even if it's your own camera pointing at your own face mm. and you're holding it, it still can be challenging because in your mind's eye, you're thinking of all the people that possibly could be watching potentially uh, later on and seeing your, at least me, my stupid face talking to people. <laughs> um, but yeah, so it, it initially started out uh, requiring a li little bit more time, but as you know, it's, it's a learning curve. And once you get the hang of it and you, and you know, uh, how to edit or if how to break down the video. I actually have stopped. I used to want to do a lot of editing. I do like almost zero editing now. And I think it's because uh, part of that is because um, it, the real value isn't necessarily in the production quality, but mm. in the actual quality of the content. Uh, production quality is great and it is always going to enhance the content. Um, but in a, in a, in a, I guess a platform or a venue uh, like Instagram uh, especially through Instagram stories, but as well as like when I'm doing a video that's more educational in a way or trying to be more informative, the information is what's most valuable. Yeah, definitely. And yeah. I could spend hours trying to edit myself and cut back and go back over and repeat things. Um, but, you know, stumbling over my words, like I guarantee I'm doing already done a lot uh, talking with you right now <laughs> and I'll do more, but. Uh, stumbling over your words and saying the wrong things and then having to back up and correct myself because um, I say words that have absolutely nothing to do with I'm actually with what I'm actually <laughs> talking about. Um, it just it, it makes the information that much more I feel like more relatable, more it brings a, kind of a more of a human element to it instead of it being like so clean cut and mm, yeah. and overproduced. I think. Uh, if you can afford to take the time and, and do quality production, I say do it. Um, but if you can't, um, it's okay too. I mean, again, it's, it comes down to the, the value and the quality of the, the actual content that you're providing, whether it's entertainment or education or whatever it is, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, following on from that thread too, we, we've actually got a question from one of our listeners. So, sure. so Bob sure. Rankin, who I know listens to the show, um, he's asked, Hi, thank you for all the great tutorials on Instagram for how to make Damascus patterns. Uh, they really make sense, and 
you do a great job. Have you thought about doing that on YouTube? I actually, I do. I, I definitely do have plans to uh, work on getting uh, kind of, especially the pattern welded Wednesday stuff uh, mm-hmm. that I've been doing, get that put together and archived essentially uh, on YouTube. Um, I started, and maybe some people have noticed, but as I started doing more and more of the pattern welded Wednesdays, I realized when you go back through my feed, it's incredibly difficult to recognize which is just me blabbing at the foot, you know, at the camera and when it, which, and then which one is actually a pattern welded Wednesday. And if Hmm. people want to more quickly access that information, uh, it's actually, you can't really, unless, like I said, in the, in the last few that I started doing, I, I labeled it so that the first thing you saw when you're scrolling through my feed is said on that first picture pattern welded Wednesday. And then that's like, Oh, okay. That makes sense. I'm going to click on that. Um, but anyways, yes, I would like to, uh, get them put together in, in YouTube. And I think really more than anything, it's just going to be at first, it's not, uh, the production quality is not going to be super high. Essentially it's going to be taking all those pictures, uh, and those short videos and seaming them together and just making a longer form video out of it and putting it on YouTube. But I, I, uh, am incredibly busy. Hmm. <laughs> Not only with the knife making, but I have a young one and a half year old son and who and and a wife and you know, I have to spend time with them and I want to spend time with them. <laughs> it sounds terrible. It's I not a chore. It's a... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, I want to spend time with them and so that, that doesn't al- allow for um yeah, extra time to do stuff like the yeah. putting the videos on YouTube. Yeah. But that is definitely uh on my list uh of things to do it's just uh not at the top of that list right now <laughs> yeah yeah but that's the thing i think a, a modern knife maker you know they, they've got their hand in all those kinds of things too because you know you need to market yourself and you need to do all the rest of it it's yeah. it, it's not just you know hitting shit out of steel there's there's other stuff to be done right hmm. right so let's absolutely let's talk about your finishes um because they're incredible okay. they're incredible and i'm i'm just in the process of finishing my first sort of damascus knife and cool. you know and getting a good etch is a real art so i've been obviously looking at the kind of stuff that you're doing and you're using tricks like using coffee and, and so right. on so so how do you get such beautiful finishes it is it, getting a good finish is can be a uh, a beautiful thing and an absolute terror um and just pulling out my hair like the coffee thing i i really only feel like i've i've really started getting a, a hang of it and I've been doing it for the last two years. I haven't really been talking about it because there's no point in trying to talk about something and share some, but something when I don't even really know what the hell I'm doing. <laughs> um, but recently I, uh, I did start talking about the pattern or, uh, the coffee finish, <laughs> um, because I feel like I have started to get more consistent results. And part of the reason I, I like the coffee finishes cause it, it, uh, gives the, my customer an opportunity to develop that relationship, especially with a high carbon steel knife. You, you know, you have to have a, a relationship with it, meaning that, uh, just like your cast iron, you don't use your cast iron and then throw it in your sink half full of water and leave it. You know, you have to take care of it. You have to have a relationship with it. And so that's the same case, uh, with a carbon steel knife. Um, and part of that is people want, especially with the Damascus patterns, they want, sometimes they want that pattern to pop again, be, to look just like it did when they first bought it. And, and so I've been working on developing this coffee treatment kind of technique so that 
customers, my customers can do that on their own in their own homes um, with um, equipment and uh, I guess ingredients readily available to them. Hmm. Um, so I suppose the idea there is the coffee is sort of slight, slightly acidic, so it's not doing that sort of initial etch. It, right. it just sort of yeah. brings brings the pattern back out. I suppose is that is that right? Yeah. Well. It's I and I don't I would love to work with uh, a chemist or kind of try to discuss that with somebody to better understand what the hell is actually happening, because depending on the concentration, it definitely can etch the steel. But it's such a mild acid concentration of uh, I believe it's the active acid is phosphoric acid. Um, But it's on such a minuscule level that it it does almost nothing. And you, I've left blades in the coffee for like two days, and if you did with that with ferric chloride, you'd come back to probably nothing, uh, or almost nothing. Um, but with the coffee, it's then almost nothing actually happens to it, except for the fact that the blade darkens. Now, how how nice of a finish that is definitely varies. Uh, I find that especially with the coffee treatment, how old or how fresh, I guess. The mixture is makes a big difference. What kind of coffee are you using? You know, I've tried different types of um, of instant coffee. Actually, um, is what I've got the best results with. And I've and you know they don't always do the same thing. Um, but yeah, like I, uh, you were mentioning, I do get my initial etch for depth with the with ferric chloric acid. And actually, a lot of people do. Uh, four to one water to ferric Mm. um, mixture ratio. I actually do half that because I don't mind taking the extra time to let it etch a little bit slower. So I feel like I have just that much better control. I also feel like um, I have, uh, I feel like it etches just a little sharper, cleaner um, where if if the acid's too strong, um, if I somehow got that mixture ratio off just a little bit and it's a little on the stronger side, it can do some weird stuff uh, to the steel, like weird pitting, um, and, which is definitely not desirable. Um, but, yeah, it usually takes about 20 minutes and 20 to 30 minutes, depending on the temperature of essentially the ambient temperature of my shop, um, will determine how active and aggressively that acid will eat away at the steel. But, um and I go for just just a little bit of a bite where I can start feeling a texture on the surface with my fingernail, and once I have that, I've, I'm feel pretty good about the etch, the depth of depth of the etch. Um, and then from there, I scrub the blade super clean. I have 2,500 grit sandpaper that I uh, that I, I actually abrade against itself uh, to kind of break down and even out that that abrasive surface. And, and then I take that and I scrub that across the entire surface of the blade to, to clean off the entire blade. Mm. And then, um, and then I mix up my coffee, uh, uh, mixture and, uh, it's it, here in the United States, we have these, uh, Nescafe Classico dark roast, mm. yeah. uh, containers of instant coffee. And I use what, I don't know what it is in uh, milliliters, I'm sorry, Uh, but it's a seven ounce container, uh, which equates to about three cup measuring cups. Um, And I I mix that with half a gallon of water. And you have to, you don't just mix it cold. You actually, you want to bring it up to a boil and then let it cool back off. 
uh, until it, it's at least, at least for my use, my purposes, at least the same temperature as maybe the the, the hot water would come out of your tap, hmm. which yeah. is around 180 degrees, 160 degrees Fahrenheit, and um, and then it, it, depending on the type of build I'm doing, sometimes the blades attached to the handle, sometimes it's not. But I just submerge it into the coffee and I check it every, uh, especially if it's a very, like I just mixed up the batch and it's super fresh, I'll check it like every five minutes um, just to get a look at what the color is doing and what the activity is. And sometimes, again, I still have a hard time getting super consistent results, but I'm they're more consistent now, uh, but sometimes for whatever reason, the coffee uh, does this weird blotchiness. And so instead of hitting that with the uh, 2500 grit, I actually get uh, four aught um, uh, steel wool and mm. kind of scrub back over it. And it's enough to kind of remove some of the dark color, but not so aggressive as the 2500 grit to polish it out. And uh, that kind of evens out the surface again. And then I put it back in the coffee and I'll come back five minutes later just to check on it. And if it's um, etching evenly or kind of uh, affecting the surface nice and easily, I'm good. And I'll just keep coming back every five minutes until I feel like the black areas have the black that I want. Mm. Um, and uh, I, like the last time I did uh, the coffee treatment, I did I took about four rounds of 10 minutes. Uh, it, it, yeah, I made the coffee treatment maybe four or five days prior. Uh, so it wasn't fresh, fresh. Mm. Um, okay. and it was actually probably on the, on the, at the very end of its kind of is its life The the acid essentially kind of, it weakens and wears kind of, I don't know if it necessarily, uh, floats away or what's going on. That sounds really stupid. <laughs> but it I, mellows uh, out. I should, yeah. I should have a smarter answer for that, but essentially <laughs> the coffee, the coffee, that I mixture from the date that I had made it, it, it really only lasts maybe a week, hmm. uh, which is fine because, you know, the coffee is really inexpensive, but the results that it provides are really beautiful and really great. Um, and, and then, so after I feel like it's got the coffee or the color that I want, you know, I just pull it out and I, I keep a, uh, bisodium, uh, uh, of course I can't think of baking soda. Yeah. Uh, Bisodium carbonate, sorry. Uh, water mixture, no specific ratio really, but just enough in there so it can help neutralize the the mild acid that is in the coffee. And it's right next to the coffee. So I pull it out of the coffee and it goes straight into um, into the, the baking soda water mixture because I've – and the reason I do that is because I've noticed if I let the coffee even for – 10 seconds because there's still some the warmth some warmth in the coffee it'll start to uh the surface it'll some of the oils will start to dry and it'll affect the finish on the surface and i i don't like that (laughs) and it's not the result i'm going for uh uh, the result i'm going for is essentially to pull it out of the coffee and be done Mm. and so to do that i have to go straight from the coffee into the baking soda water uh, let it do its thing for just 10 seconds or so just to rinse it off. And then, um, I pull it out with some paper, paper towels. I'll wipe it off. And as long as the color is holding, it's done. Hmm. I don't, it, it, sh- it typically, uh, at least in my experience is not affecting the 15 and 20 or the, the nickel steel, uh, whatever, um, 
that element might be for you uh, or anybody, you know, in general. But for me, my Damascus steel is typically made from 1080 and 15 and 20 high carbon steels. And so it's the 15 and 20 that provides the bright areas. And I've been finding that the uh, the coffee doesn't affect the 15 and 20 at all. Uh, so it comes out super high contrast. And then the black holds holds up well enough that I've been able to buff it, which is pretty incredible. Mm. But I, I no longer do the buffing one because it's not necessary and two it's kind of it's always anytime you buffing something is it's a little bit of a dangerous operation um and so yeah and then from there i just dry it off and uh i've started using uh like a, a food like a food safe uh cutting board conditioner so which is usually kind of a, a mineral spirit and beeswax kind of mixture mm. and just oh, to as, kind as a of preserve yeah, ah, just to cool. kind of preserve it and, you know, helps uh, kind of if there's any if there happens to be any kind of extra moisture on there, it helps kind of displace that and get rid of that. Um, and it's, you know, it's food safe and it's not going to hurt the steel. Mm. Um, yeah. OK. And cool. then from there, I just kind of finished up. So, I mean, modern steels, they, you know, they're, they're clean, they're highly performant. Um, so yeah. apart from the obvious sort of aesthetic differences, what do you think of the advantages of, of a pattern welded blade compared to, say, a single steel or a mono steel blade? Sure. Um, well, part of it, yeah, I mean, you're you're absolutely 100 percent right. You know, um, the steels that we're starting with to make the Damascus are great steels in the first place. Um, Let's talk about one of our sponsors, Tormac, to get great razor sharp and repeatable edges you're going to need a Tormac. To find out more, go to Tormac.com, which is T-O-R-M-E-K.com. Okay, let's get back to the show. So there's the the kind of narrative element to the actual knife. So when you're making a knife from uh, pattern-welded steel that has kind of like the history of... All, like the Celts and the Vikings and as well as crucible steels and all the stories and all the lore and everything. So that helps give it kind of a more of a, a mystique in that way. Um, but when it comes to actual performance, um, because e- even though uh, the steels, especially the steels I'm working with are almost essentially the same, um, they do heat treat and tempers just very slightly differently. All steels do that. So at the cutting edge, you have just slightly different hardnesses. And as you use that knife, I mean, you could bring it up to a 10,000 grit stone finish, razor sharp edge. But as you use the knife and it becomes exposed to uh, foods and other kind of acids, whether they're fruits and vegetables or the amino acids from proteins, um, the and as well as the surface that you're cutting on, those materials wear just slightly differently, um, which sounds bad um but it's really interesting this Mm. the uh the effect i've noticed is that it it feels not necessarily like the knife is getting sharper but it continues to cut actually quite aggressively for what seems like a lot longer i suppose you'd have uh, these sort of micro serrations wouldn't you absolutely yeah i suppose that's what it is yeah at the edge and and you know a a mono steel knife you, you can get a really nice high polish on it 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 wears down evenly, and especially if you're doing work like you're a sushi chef or something like that, or uh, you or you're trying to do food preparation where a really nice, clean, smooth 
uh, cut is really important, then you either want to sharpen it or you want to work with a knife that has um, the same kind of material all along the cutting edge. Um, but if you're not necessarily doing that work, it's it's. I actually like the Damascus steel because it feels, it, and it it I feel like it performs uh, for. A, a lot longer between sharpenings than maybe a mono steel will. Mm. Um, you know, and I have a 5160 uh, chef's knife that I made actually while I was still working with Bob. Uh, I did a heat treat with a torch and some clay, and I thought I could get a homone, which is now I realize is idiotic. And I did <laughs> get a homone, uh, but 5160 is a deep hardening steel, which means it takes a long time uh, mm. to trans trans transition into uh you know it's hard state where you know I, ideally you want to if you're trying to get a hormone you want a, a shallow hardening steel which means it, it moves through those different phases and, and crystalline structure and organization in a very small window in a very short period of time and that's how you get like a really nice hormone right hmm. so is your heat treating being done in the forge or using an oven for your heat treat uh it depends on what i'm doing and how i'm feeling that day i hmm. i have I get great results out of both, um, especially working in the shop I'm in now. I mean, we have four Paragon kilns available to us, as well as two very large kilns that my shopmates typically are using for heat treating swords mm. and salt salt baths for heat treating swords. Um, and the the kilns have argon purges in them, and so you know it it really. It really depends on what the situation is. If it's just something I'm playing with and experimenting for myself, I'll just do it straight out of the forge. I have no problem doing that, uh, and I get great results out of the forge. Um, but if it's for a customer, then I definitely um, – it's its a very controlled uh, experience where it's going uh, to ver- into the kiln and in, in a very controlled environment. Uh, it's to precise numbers and – and so, yeah. Yeah. Okay. So do you make any stainless knives at all or is it all high carbon stuff? Uh, not, not presently. Um, but I do have some upcoming projects where, uh, I'll be working with some stainless, uh, woots or crucible steel that my shopmate, hmm. uh, Peter Swartz Burt actually makes. Um, and it's incredible stuff. I did some kind of, kind of some, not destruction testing on it, but just to see what kind of edge it takes and how well it holds it through um, some kind of abusive cutting. I did uh, hemp rope, and hemp rope is uh, marine grade hemp rope is pretty pretty tough stuff, and it was a uh, one inch rope. I I got over a hundred cuts in it, no problem. And before I started feeling like the 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 edge wasn't um, you know, cutting as aggressively as when I initially started. And all it took was literally a couple light swipes on my ceramic hone to, um, to kind of realign those micro serrations at the cutting edge. And it was back to brand new. And I pretty much started all over again. And so after a few rounds of that, I was like, okay, well, that's pretty impressive. Um, because it just, it really impressed me how resilient that edge was. And part of it is because, it is such a high carbon stainless, but it's designed to intentionally create carbide uh, banding in the blade um, that it makes it incredibly wear resistant and the edge very um, 
resilient. But uh, I do have some projects uh, coming up actually using Damasteel's stainless uh, Damascus. And um, it's kind of a, a, a project that it, essentially it's them working to uh, promote their materials in the use of cutlery, especially kitchen knives. I mean, hmm. people use this material there's their steels through all types of different applications from rings to folding knives and scales and, and all types of stuff. Um, but they, they really want to get more people using it as chef's knives because they really believe in the product. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be working with some of their steel, uh, to make some knives to kind of test out and get a, and get a feel for it and how it performs. Cool. Very good. So, so if you weren't making knives, what do you think you'd be doing for a living? Um, actually, that's really funny you ask. So, is this back to the salsa dancing? To... Yeah, back to the salsa dancing. You know, <laughs> salsa dancing is really great exercise. I was listening to a podcast the other day uh, with Chef Richard Blaze, and he is an uh, he's a runner. He's ran the New York Marathon, twenty six point two miles, like four or five times. And he, Jeez, wow. the idea of just running that once sounds like I would fucking die well that's what i'm doing um, i'm signed up for the paris marathon in less, oh in less than three months and it's you're you're a better man than me it's that killing is, me the training is killing me <laughs> i believe it huh? but yeah, yeah. How, how, what do you know until you try it right exactly exactly what's the worst that can happen eh? right so if i was doing anything else outside of knife making i i loved cooking i love cooking actually i cook at home all the time um and obviously i did it for work um i think if i had worked in a better environment one where a kitchen either was better designed to serve the space and the number of people that were coming in or the the culture in the kitchen was better i would love to go back into cooking um but when it came to schooling the the thing i was always best at was um like classes around uh, psychology and and interpersonal communication and talking with people and stuff like that. And um, when I was talking to my wife last night, you know, I told her, you know, if I ever uh, when I retire, if, if I can't do anything with knife making, uh, I would love to go back uh, and get into becoming kind of a, like a high school guidance counselor of some sort um, mm. in the way that, uh, you know, it's a it's a tough time. Uh, I think people, especially adults, I, it's, I don't know if there's some sort of weird, like, uh, just they completely forget it, what it was like, or maybe people had it really great and they didn't see the people that had a hard time. But, um, I, I, th- I wish I had a better relationship with the people that were in that position when I was, uh, at that point in my life. Um, yeah. and I think, uh, it would, it'd be really incredible to be able to, to offer that kind of help to people, um, uh, who are, who are at that point in their lives when, you know, if, if, you know, when I'm 70 years old, if I even make it that long, uh, you know, to be working with younger people, uh, who are in a a hard time in their life potentially. And, you know, you never know what people are going through. And so, yeah, yeah, it it, it can't be easy being a kid. Definitely can't. I'm pretty sure it's harder these days than it was when, when I was young, but yeah. Yeah, it's it's really yeah, and that's that's another thing. It's just how things have changed, especially through, uh, it's, you know, the internet didn't really start taking off until the early two thousands, maybe even a little later than that. And social media and Facebook are some of the things that really help bring that to a younger audience, and it's made 
it, it has added a different element to the challenges that people are, are coming up against that, you know, even my, myself or my own parents didn't, uh, you know, have to deal with necessarily. And so, yeah. Yeah. New pressures, new pressures. So Absolutely. like many of the guests on the show, you, you've appeared on Forged in Fire. Um, I did. So I'm just yeah. going to ask you one question because we've asked all the questions now, I think. <laughs> okay. But how did you find that experience? I I really, really enjoyed it, actually. Uh, I didn't know what to expect, especially the first time I went on. It was the first season. I'd never done anything like that before. Uh, I didn't even know if I was going to be able to talk in front of a camera or not. <laughs> but um, there have been so many experiences in my life that I had passed on, either because I was too afraid to do it or I thought, you know, I, my friends would make fun of me or something like that. And, and I'm, I've gotten to the point where I don't care about that stuff anymore. And more than anything, I didn't want to regret not doing it. And that's all I had in my head. You know, I did not want to regret it. And so, uh, I went on and I didn't, I didn't even think about the fact that, you know, I would be making friends with my fellow competitors, uh, as well as some of the production people. And, and I mean, that's part of the reason I'm in Connecticut now, uh, is from the, the relationship I developed with my, uh, my friend, Jamie, who ended up beating me in my first episode, <laughs> uh, of Forged and Fire with the Roman Gladius. Um, but it, it's, it's created amazing opportunities and, and, and the personal growth is also another thing I never, I never anticipated it to be put in a, a situation that is so foreign and, um, essentially incredibly stressful, mm. um, where you're working in a foreign space with a time clock ticking over your head. And is that real? Um, Are the time pressures really there? Oh, Absolutely. They, 100%. Um, uh, there, there's no fudge in that part. They, mm. they play with the timeline a little bit when it comes to like the different rounds where, where specific things happen. Um, but other than that, you got three hours and that's it mm. uh, for wow. either round. Um, and even when you go home, the time, they, they're very um, careful about keeping track of the time that you're actually spending um, working on the final project. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So you, you must see a lot of blades from from other makers, whether it was you know whether it's on the show Forged in Fire or you know just people in general showing you their showing you their work. Now, yeah, well, and I follow a lot of people through Instagram and yeah. Facebook and stuff like that. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So, so, what mistakes do you see people making all too often? Um, I think one of the biggest mistakes I see people making is, um. Cut, cutting the work short. Um, they get to a point in the project where they feel like they're stressing out because it's taking too long and they have other things lined up that they want to get done. Or they feel like, you know, maybe they underbid the person and it's taking a lot longer than they anticipated. And they get to a point where they they say, you know what, I'm not getting paid enough for this. And they, they wrap it up in a day or two hmm. and they just call it good. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, I think one of the, the the lessons, one of the strongest lessons I took, especially with working for Bob, uh, was that once your name's on that, and even if the names, you know, through uh, use uh, and and time and thinning of a blade, that's still your knife, and mm. your name's going on that, and that's going out into the world, and you have no idea who that's going to. Maybe it's going to somebody who 
uh, has quote unquote no name, but who do you like? They might know somebody that could change your entire career, hmm. uh, that could change the entire trajectory of what you're doing with yourself and your work. And to make a knife that is subpar or essentially is, is not to the best of your ability at that specific point in time. And, and I understand like not literally not wanting to make it in exactly, exactly perfect. Uh, that would be incredibly, I like, I'm the worst critic of my work. Um, I, and I have really high standards and I still get stuff done in a somewhat timely manner. But, um, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I, I definitely am getting, I feel like I get underpaid and I don't know if that's, if I'm not actually getting paid enough or if I am fretting over my work too much. But anyways, that work is going out into the world forever and your name is on it. And I think, you know, it, it should be, you should have a pretty well-defined standard of quality that it should be leaving the shop. It shouldn't be varying based on the amount of time that you spent on it. Um, and I'm constantly striving to put out a better blade than I did the last time, every single time I make a knife. Mm, yeah. And, and I think one, I mean, th one of the reasons I love this craft is because it is a constant bear. It's constantly challenging you. Uh, even if you've done something a thousand times, uh, or even a hundred, whatever, you know, many times, many times, every time I grind a blade, I'm still learning something, uh, wh whether it's about efficient efficiency and quality or in the time it takes to actually do something, or, uh, I accidentally make a mistake and then it actually ends up fortunately most of the time becoming a happy accident. And I learn something both from it being a mistake, but then in the way that I can control that, uh, attribute and do it purposefully the next time around um you know there's always something to learn so but no cutting I, corners no cutting corners yeah, at all. no yeah. yeah i uh i was actually talking with nick wheeler the other day uh through instagram messaging matt tell nick he, he needs to come on the show <laughs> give, i've I'll asked countless he's just so busy always so busy <laughs> he is he's very busy guy yeah um but uh he and i uh we're gonna start a t-shirt uh, brand or not brand, but we're going to start printing t-shirts oh, that cool. say, fuck, fuck, you're good enough. Um, <laughs> because I don't know, that's to me, that's like the death of, 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 um, forward progression, I guess, uh, is to say ah, that's good enough. Yeah. That's okay. good enough. And it drives me crazy. Um, I, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I, I guess because I'm the worst critic of my own work, you know, I, it's never good enough. I'm, and I always recognize that there's an opportunity to learn and that I'm, I'll never be perfect or, uh, at what I'm doing, but which is fine because I don't want to be perfect. I want an opportunity to continue learning through this because otherwise, why am I doing it? Mm, if it's yeah, just exactly. going to become stagnant. Yeah. yeah. So, so what next you make amazing knives, you you've got your t-shirt range on the go <laughs> yeah well but, i have a lot more t-shirt designs other than that <laughs> so what are your plans for uh, 2018 yeah you know, so uh apparel actually is part of that um i i don't i don't know if people have noticed but i wear all types of crazy t-shirts t-shirts uh i love t-shirts and uh i actually before uh, even before I graduated high school, I was into uh, screen printing and design, and I actually was like a, one of the artsy kids in a way. Mm. Um, 
but I thought it would be so fun to have a t-shirt company. And, and now I finally have, uh, quite a few design ideas that I'd like to get put together and, uh, start getting printed so that maybe I'll have something at blade show to, to offer people or, or be able to at least, uh, take some, um, some, I guess, pre-orders. Um, but apparel is definitely part of that. Uh, I'm actually talking with our friend, Jeff Vader, who, uh, says hello. Um, <laughs> And, uh, but I'm talking with him about doing some work, kind of collaboration work, uh, in, in the way regarding kind of, uh, my pattern welded Wednesday designs and the way that I make a poster. Uh, I'm talking, he's a, he's a tremendous artist himself outside of knife making. Oh, his watercolors uh, are incredible. The knives. That absolutely. He, they're great. Exactly. Yeah. I love them. I absolutely love them. And so we're talking about, uh, maybe doing some work and creating some posters, um, of those different order of operations, essentially, cool. uh, that people can either hang up in their shop or keep handy in their in their you know office or whatever, however people want to use them. Um, and you know, those are just a couple. I, I have more pattern design ideas uh, that I'd like to play with uh, that I'm hoping to share. Hopefully, yeah, especially in the next six months uh, leading up to Blade Show. Uh, that's kind of Blade Show is interesting in the way that it, it's it's where everybody gets to unveil the most magical shit that they've come up with <laughs> in, the, in the last year. Yeah. And so I have a few ideas that I'd like to to bring to the show and see what people think about it. Um, but otherwise, you know, I just that's those are the things. Other than uh, other than that, it's it's just keeping up with orders and uh, and you know trying to serve people as best as I possibly can. Yeah. So a busy year, busy year. So I'm yeah. going to finish with the same question that I ask every guest, um, which is yeah. quite simple. Whose work do you find inspiring? Oh, boy. That's not that simple because there are a lot of people <laughs> whose work is really inspiring. Um, I would say uh, that, I mean uh, – or does it, does it have to be just one, or can I say a couple people? As many as you like, as many as you like. Oh, great. Perfect. Well, uh, I, it won't be a super long list, but um, so when it comes to uh, people who are really inspiring me, uh, especially when it comes to knife making, uh, Salem Straub is definitely one guy uh, I, I love to follow. He's just insanely creative, and not only is he insanely creative and, and definitely bending kind of the plane on which everybody's trying to make knives and, and kind of warping it in a way he's, his quality of work is super high. I've, uh, I've actually met him and held his work in person and is just insanely well executed. Um, I'm sorry, I keep saying it insanely so much. <laughs> um, and, uh, another maker is, uh, Julian Antunes, and if he's listening, I'm sorry if I completely butchered your name, uh, but he is also another maker whose work uh, uh, really inspires me and in just the simple quality of execution. Uh, it's amazing what, especially a lot of the South American makers, are able to uh, to do when it comes to knife making because most of the stuff they're working with are tools that they just built themselves. And it, it cracks me up when people are like, Oh, I got this next big fancy tool or machine and stuff. And they're, they're great, obviously, but they're not necessarily necessary because the people, the, the makers in South America are doing fucking incredible work with 
the most bare bones of situations or tools they've made themselves. Yeah. Um, when it comes to uh, forging, uh, I would say Mike Quesenberry is a maker who just is constantly inspiring me from the quality of his execution of his forging and his control of the patterns. Uh, and it's just, his work is incredibly very highly refined. Um, and I would say outside of, uh, knife making, uh, people who've been major inspirations to me, um, there's a woman named Ellen Bennett and, uh, she, she's a, she makes aprons. Uh, she initially started making aprons um, for for people she worked with. She worked in the in the restaurant industry herself, but now she has grown her company. Um, I think over the last five or seven years or something like that, to this an enormous brand that is all over the world. And um, but more than anything, she's created like an incredible community around the products that she provides to people and uh, j- just her her work ethic and her go get them positive attitude no matter what. Like she like, like I thought I stayed up super late and, um, you know, sometimes I'm up until two o'clock in the morning, uh, either messaging people trying to keep up with Instagram or uh, or also just keeping up relationships and developing new relationships and answering emails. She's up until sometimes three, four, five o'clock in the morning, uh, LA time, uh, still working, designing, um, doing apron stuff. And she, or, and she has, she's built her company up into, uh, large enough to actually be able to support and create opportunities for other people in the way of creating jobs and, and employing and having employees and, and just it's, her work is really incredible. Mm. I, th- uh, I think I've seen her in. I think she did a a talk at the Do Lectures, which is a. Um, I suppose they're like TED talks, but a bit more sort of off grid, which they do in Wales. And I'm pretty sure, sure she spoke there. She's just super enthusiastic, and yeah, I'm pretty yeah. sure that was her. She's awesome. <laughs> and then I, I guess lastly, so I'm not taking it too far, is uh, it, somebody who's really helped inspire my work. And when it comes, especially when it comes to uh, social media and marketing and branding, that's, that's such a major part of knife making now. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, people used to rely on going to shows and to, uh, and to and essentially pandering to a very small group of collectors yeah. and social media has created an opportunity for uh, those collectors as well as the makers to connect with each other all over the world. Um, which is, I think is incredibly powerful, uh, a tool, but if you don't know how to use it, uh, you know, what good is it? And so I, I think, uh, I think Alex Steele actually mentioned Gary Vaynerchuk before, Yes, but, he did. Yes, um, yeah. Gary Vaynerchuk has been incredibly, uh, inspiring to me in the way. And he, it's, he's an interesting character. I don't know if you've seen any of his content. He does yes, a lot of yeah. keynote speaks. And uh, he's a very good stuff. guy because I've got a bit of a story about Gary actually. So okay. in a former life, I was, uh, I was a web developer and occasionally okay. I'd run events and I was running, um, sort of web development sort of events. You know, we get, you know, sure. sometimes a couple of thousand people, that kind of thing. And I, yeah. I booked Gary. Uh, I booked Gary and Steve Wozniak for the same show, and it was it was a pretty oh, big wow. show. Um, but the yeah. the venue at the very last minute let us down. Um, oh, no. So obviously you pay deposits to these speakers, you know, and it, it's yeah. it's a considerable amount of money too. 
Um, sure. But Gary just paid it back and said, no worries. It's, you know, these things happen. And he was such a gent. So, yeah. Yeah. He, he was great. He really is a good guy. Yeah. It, and uh, if anybody listening, I, <laughs> he can come off the wrong way uh, <laughs> when you hear him the first time. Uh, and I think more than anything, it, he recognizes uh, that the way that he's talking is is a way to connect with people and kind of kind of one of his things he constantly is saying is break the pattern. And, uh, you know, you see a lot of these keynote speakers that get up there, especially if you've ever seen a TED talk or any kind of kind of symposium situation. Um, people get up, they introduce themselves and they talk very nicely and they're very professional. And he gets on stage and he's like, fuck you guys. Yeah. Fuck this. <laughs> you guys are all. You, you're the worst. You suck. You all losing. Uh, but he doesn't mean it to be mean hearted. He does it to help jar people in a way. Yeah, it's a wake up um, call. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and it's just the, the, the cadence of speaking and, and, the, and the, it helps deliver the message where most people just kind of zone out and they're like, OK, this is similar uh, information that most I hear a lot. But when he's telling you like, when he's dropping F-bombs and he's telling you you're going to fucking lose, uh, that makes you stop and listen and be like, well, but why? <laughs> what am I doing wrong? And um, and I think I agree with you like 100%. He realistically, the real him uh, is a very nice guy who's who recognizes he has a talent and he he believes in a world where people should be doing the things that make them happy simply just to help make the world a better place as as cheesy as that sounds. But imagine if everybody woke up and was happy to go to work to Mm -hmm. start their day, to start their work. Like (laughs) I would be amazed if even 2% of the world's population is, it feels that way. Mm, Uh, I don't think they do. Yeah. But I do uh, think a knife makers are that breed. I think it's a bit of a calling. Like you said, it may not be the, the best paid job in the world. You may be putting the extra hours in, but I think that's because people enjoy doing it and makes them happy. Especially through social media, uh, there people have recognized um, that there's an opportunity to make money off people who don't understand what they're looking at or or have heard about Bob Kramer, but can't necessarily rec- uh, you know, afford a Bob Kramer knife, but then they, they see this other thing that's substantially cheaper, and they, they can go for that. Mm-hmm. Um, and those people uh, make me unhappy. And I get a lot of pushback from other fellow makers, people who are friends with me, uh, for doing kind of the informational stuff that I do. Um, because they they feel like I'm I'm giving away all the trade secrets or or people are actually afraid to talk to me. Some people are afraid to talk to me now because they think I'm going to give away all the secrets. And the, the my problem with that is that that is the complete wrong mindset because mm. because the uh, the the visibility that Bob Kramer and other makers have helped create for the trade as well as Forged and Fire, uh, and, you know, at the work Alex Steele's doing, you doing this show has helped bringing this uh, this trade to the world and the more people that know about it the more people want to be part of that in the way either as a customer or a maker but um the reality is that the the supply and demand uh there's a serious uh inequity there in the fact that the demand is immense but the supply is is minuscule yeah, yeah. and because the supply is so minuscule there are so many people interested in our work that we could – all the best makers in the world could never serve everybody 
who who wants that quality of work yeah and sharing and, that knowledge is good for the customer too because they they, they know exactly. they know the story you know they're not just buying a random knife they're buying the story they're buying you you know Right. Well, and, I, and that's what I was starting to kind of get at is, you know, me sharing this information. I love that it helps people and uh, especially other makers in a way. Mm. But more than anything, I feel like I have a responsibility to help better inform people so that even if they don't buy a knife from me, they buy a knife from you, they buy a knife from Don Wynn, whoever. Mm. Like I, I'm happy that they're buying a knife or a product from somebody who's actually passionate about the work and who's actually doing quality work, who is not a bullshitter. And so I feel like I have a responsibility uh, as somebody with a platform, not as, I mean, I don't even think I really have a platform, but I have some people following me. Yeah. Yeah. And so I feel responsible to, to help better inform them so that they know what they're looking at when they're buying something. So they're not buying some piece of crap that they have you know, they completely discard a couple of years down the road where I'm trying to build knives that could last 200 years. Mm. If as long as it's taken care of, you could use, I think you could use one of my knives for at least a hundred years. Uh, and that's fucking mind boggling to think about that. Even something could last more than 10 years, you know? Yeah. yeah. Uh, in, in amazing, this day and age, especially, yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, like I said, I just, I feel like I have a responsibility to better inform, uh, the customer base, uh, and, you know, I, I love helping other makers, and but through education, but it's also kind of a way to, you know, silence the bullshitters. Uh, and I'm, I'm sorry, I keep swearing so much, uh, but you know, to, to you know, cut the cut down their voice and take it away in a way so that, um, you know, that there are good products in the world. Because, you know, I want people to feel good about the things that they're buying. And when there are people out there taking advantage of of folks that always brings up a, a sense of uh you know unsureness mm. i don't know what the word is i can't yeah. think right now but i know what you, you mean know, yeah yeah this instability in their their confidence to buy something um where they should be 100 percent confident buying a handmade crafted knife from anybody who actually is one of those people who yeah. does that work Okay. Okay. Well, I think <laughs> I think we've probably get, we've covered most things there. <laughs> yeah. But again, absolutely. thank you so much for your time. I know you're a very busy guy, and you've just taken a lot of time out of you know your busy schedule. So I appreciate it. I'm sure the listeners do too. And um, I'm, yeah. hopefully, we get to speak again soon. No, it's my. It's been again. It's been my absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you. Uh, not only doing this show and, and helping create opportunities for people to again, be educated or, or better informed, but, uh, you know, you're helping expose makers to a whole new group of people who may have never known they even existed. So uh, I think the work you're doing is awesome. 